Well, good morning. It's so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome. As you make your way back to your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And let me pray for us as we open up the Word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for today. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Lord, in our call to worship, we read about your wondrous work that you have done and that you are worthy of praise and honor and glory, Lord. And we thank you for the wondrous work you've done for us in Christ Jesus, where you have atoned for all of our sins, where you've satisfied the wrath of God. You have redeemed us and reconciled us and have forgiven us and have set us free from the bondages of sin, and you have made us new through your Spirit. Lord, thank you. And Lord, as your church, as your people, as we gather uh, to open up your word, Lord, can you speak to us? Can you make yourself known to us? Open up our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our minds. Stir our affections for you, Lord. And I pray, help us to fix our eyes on you. May this word be centered on you, Lord Jesus. Lord, and as we get to this difficult passage and we talk about church discipline and excommunication, Lord, a topic that we as a culture despise and we want to avoid at all costs, Lord, can this be a sweet time? Can we see this wonderful gift that you've given us? Can you help us to see how you're working in those areas? And Lord, convict us. Forgive us. And Lord, I pray that as we walk out of here, Lord, may we fix our eyes on you. And for those who don't know you, Lord, may they experience you in a way they've never experienced you. And Lord, come and make yourself known. We really do need you to speak to us through your text. Holy Spirit, illuminate truth to us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and so a little quick overview. What Paul is doing is Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth, and what he's doing is he's reasoning and he's persuading them as he's addressing 10 issues in the church. And really what we're seeing in all 10 issues that he's addressing, he's communicating the same message that God, because of the, the gospel, the gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. And my hope for us in this series is that we would understand that the more the church matures in purity, in other words, the more distinct we look from the world, the more different we look from the world, the more we will grow in unity as well. Now, Paul's already addressed the very first issue uh, regarding division, and now he's addressing the second issue. And the main message that he's again going to communicate is this, is that the gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity. In other words, the church must become what they already are. They have been set apart. They have been made holy positionally. Now they have to become holy practically. And so in our text, he's going to address the issue, and then he's going to rebuke them, and he is going to instruct them. Now, 
I know that this is family service today, and so I was looking ahead and saying, maybe I should skip chapter five and do chapter six, and then come back to chapter five, but the problem is chapter six is just as bad as chapter five, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take an R-rated passage and make it PG to the best of my ability, so it does not create any weird conversations with you and your child after the service, so that does not mean I'm trying to avoid the sin, I'm just trying to help you as a parent uh, so that you can have that conversation with your child at the appropriate level. So here's what's happening. In Paul addressing this issue of the sin, the solution to the problem and what he is proposing is church discipline. So we're going to take two weeks and we're going to unpack chapter five. And so the first, today we're going to look at the first five verses. And what we're going to do is we're going to unpack it and kind of talk about church discipline. Then we're going to take a step back and we're just going to talk about the topic of church discipline, the topic of excommunication, the topic of church membership, because all of us love talking about these topics. Anybody excited? That's why we've come, right? But here's the reality. Let's, Let's just be honest in our culture. We don't do that kind of stuff. We avoid it at all costs because all of us had one bad experience when it comes to church discipline and we think it's a legalistic thing. It's an awful thing. Your business is your business. My business is my business. We should just keep it that way. And yet that's not what the Bible says. So let's see what the Bible says and let's talk about it in a way that that is gospel centered. So let's look at our passage. We're going to unpack it. I'm just going to read the entire passage in one sitting, um, the first five verses, and we're going to go verse by verse again. Okay, it says this. It's actually reported that there is inappropriate relationships among you and the kind of inappropriate relationships that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is pursuing his father's wife, and you're arrogant? Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? And even though I'm absent in the body, I am present in spirit. As the one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who's been doing such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, Hand the one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What a fun verse. All right, let's get into this. So here's what Paul is reporting. It has two parts. The first part is inappropriate relationships. The second part is arrogance. So the question we got to ask ourselves is, what is this inappropriate relations? Well, Paul kind of tells us. A man is pursuing marital intimacy with his stepmother. And from our text, we can gather that this incident, incident is not normal for the culture. That's why Paul says, not even the Gentiles tolerate such an act. In other words, not even those who believe in God, those who follow God believe this is right. Everybody knows this is wrong. That's the incident. And then Paul looks to the church and then he calls them arrogant. And so the question we got to ask ourselves is why does he call them arrogant? 
And the reason why I believe he calls them arrogant, because the church of Corinth is tolerating a sin that not even their own culture is tolerating. It wasn't that they were boasting about the sin or flaunting over it before others and saying, look how progressive we are. But rather they saw it and they chose to ignore it and they looked the other way. And so the question is, why is the church tolerating it, looking the other way, where culture would say, no, that is wrong? Now, again, the text does not tell us, so we might have to make an educated guess. I could be wrong, and this is conjecture. In other words, the Bible does not say, as I'm looking at it, as I'm trying to figure out the situation, this is my best educated guess. You can disagree with me if you want to, that's cool. But here's what I'm thinking what's going on here. The reason why the church is not addressing the sin is not because they don't believe it's wrong. Their culture believes it's wrong, they believe it's wrong. But the reason why they're not addressing it is because maybe the one who's committing this sin, maybe the one who's committing this sin is a powerful man that is socially powerful inside the church and also outside the church. And maybe the church is kind of honored to have such a prominent figure that's part of their congregation. Maybe this guy is a big wig and a big donor. So what do you not want to do? Hey, let's not confront him. Let's not upset him. Because he's so socially powerful, and if he leaves our congregation, it might hurt our budget a little bit. So let's just look the other way. And so basically, the church is doing what culture does. How do we treat prominent people when they commit something bad? Just look the other way. Because we don't want to risk losing favor or making enemies of them. And I think at the heart... It's not the inappropriate relationships that that Paul is really addressing, but rather the looking the other way, turning the blind eye, seeing the problem but not wanting to address it because you don't want to offend that person and alienate that person. You don't want to end up in their bad books and, and somehow risk losing that relationship. That is what Paul is addressing. So what does Paul do? He offers a rebuke by calling them arrogant. And now he's going to instruct them of how to deal with this issue and how to correct this error. Look at verse 2b here. I'll just read verse 2. And you are arrogant, here's 2b, shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? So what is Paul saying? Instead of turning a blind eye, what should they be doing? First of all, they should be filled with with grief. Why should they be filled with grief? Not because the sin is so grievous, even though it is, but maybe because of the attitude of the sinner. What should be filling them with grief is that the person who committed the sin has no remorse. There are no signs of any repentance. And Paul is saying, that is what should break your heart. Not the fact that he did it, but the fact that he's refusing to turn from it and continue in it. And not only should they be filled with grief, but here's the hard part. He says, you should remove this man from your congregation. And the question is, why should they remove this man from their congregation? Look look at verse 5. 
hand one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, the reason why they should be handing this man over to Satan has a result and a purpose. The result is this when they hand this man over to Satan, they kick him out of the church. Is for the destruction of his flesh. You're like, well, what does it mean, the destruction of his flesh? When he's kicked outside of the church, when he's handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, now he's being confronted by the reality and the severity of his sin. Now he's facing the consequences of what he has done that it is wrong. And as he's being confronted by it, in a sense, he's being crushed by it. He's experiencing the destructive nature of his sin. That's the result. What's the hope? What's the purpose? As he's feeling the weight of his sin, he's being crushed by it because he's facing the consequences of it. What is the ultimate hope? What is the ultimate purpose? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, the purpose of the crushing and weight of his sin, facing the consequences of it so that he may turn to God in repentance and faith, believing that his rebellion is wrong, it is a defiance against the holy God, and that he can run to the Lord in repentance, knowing that Jesus paid for it all in full, that there is forgiveness. Now, when someone confronts, continues to sin in the church, and everybody knows about it, and the person is unrepentant, and no one does anything about it, what do you think is gonna, the outcome going to be of that? Is he going to feel the weight of his sin? Is he going to realize that what he or she is doing is wrong, and there's actually consequences to it? No. Which means, what's going to be the end? They might end up in destruction. But when that person is addressed, when that person is confronted, and they begin to feel the weight of their sins, even in their anger, even in their name-calling, the hope is at the end that they will turn to the Lord in repentance. So let's stop here because I'm sure you have a ton of questions. Next week, we'll try to clarify some of the questions, but I think we need to lay a little bit of groundwork here. We're going to talk about three interrelated church topics, and what I mean by interrelated is all three are related to one another. You can't have one without the other. We need to talk about church discipline. We need to talk about excommunication and church membership. All three are important. You can't have one without the other. All three... Let's just be honest, misunderstood topics, neglected topics, scoffed at topics, and abused topics. And yet, and we have to be honest, these are topics we don't really like talking about. But it's in the Bible. We have to talk about it. So let's talk about church discipline. I want to give you principles that we've learned from our text here. The first thing we can learn about church discipline, who does church discipline involve? The first thing, if you're taking notes, is this. Church discipline involves church members. 
Church discipline involves church members. And the reason why I say that is because, again, let's look at our text that Paul wrote. When Paul was writing this letter, who was he addressing this letter to? The church, right? The church in Corinth. We go to chapter 1. He says to the church of God in Corinth. But then in chapter 5, does he change his address? He's not saying, hey, and to the elders, hey, and to the leaders, hey, and to a certain group of church members. No, he's writing to the church. He's saying, you. In other words, with Paul addressing the church, he is saying the church is responsible for engaging church discipline with this member. He's the one who rebukes the church for turning a blind eye to them and saying, you must deal with it. Now, if you're really smart, you might say, hey, Neil, I think there's a loophole here just to get me out of church discipline. Some might say, you know what? The real responsibility for church discipline is not the church, but rather the leaders, the apostles, because in verse 3, Paul kind of says to, says to the church what they must be doing, and they're simply carrying out what Paul tells them to do. So church discipline falls on the apostle, and then they just simply carry out what Paul tells them to do in verse 3. But if you look at the entire chapter, we, we're, we're going to read it next week, but right now let's skip over to verses 12 to 13. Paul gives us a principle. He says, For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outside. Remove the evil person from among you. And what we're going to find out next week in the passage, Paul is saying, okay, who do we discipline? We only discipline those inside of the church, not outside the church, because we really have no right to judge those outside the church. Who's going to be the one judging those outside the church? God is. But what should we be doing? We should be judging those inside the church. In other words, confront them, address them, hold them accountable. And he tells the church, you are supposed to do it. So the whole church, not just me, not just the elders, not just the group leaders or the deacons, is responsible for church discipline, but the whole church. Second principle about church discipline, if you're taking notes, is this. Not only does it involve church members, but it must be carried out with tears and with the goal of repentance. Church discipline must be carried out with tears and the goal of repentance. We read in our passage today, you should be filled with grief. You should not be arrogant about this. You should not be boasting about it. You must be filled with grief. And the question is, why must we be filled with grief? Why are we filled with grief? Because of our love for that person. Like engaging in church discipline, engaging in correcting one another at times is gut-wrenching. It breaks our hearts. Like, like think about, uh, kids, I know you don't think that that's the truth, but mommy and daddy does not like to discipline you. Do you think they find joy in disciplining you and grounding you and taking things away from you? Mom and dad, do you like doing that? Do you find great joy in? Do you wake up and say, I can't wait to correct my child this morning and take things away and kill all of their joy? 
It is gut-wrenching. It is a burden. But why do you do that? Because you love them. You care for them. And you see them not listen. And you see them not behave. And you see that pattern continue. And what do you do in that gut-wrenching work filled with tears? You remove from them or you discipline them or punish them in a way that hurts them. But it hurts you as well. That's the idea that Paul has. Like as we engage in discipline, we should be filled with grief because of our love for one another. One of the things in our culture is we've created this idea of discipline being an unloving act. And yet the Bible says, no, discipline is a loving act. Hebrews 12, verse 7 to 8. It says, endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. What father, for what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, the point of Hebrews is like, hey, bro, if you're not getting disciplined by God, you're not a son of God. So when you're getting disciplined, count it as great joy because that means you are his child. That means he loves you because he's disciplining you. And so not only should discipline be filled with tears and it's gut-wrenching at times, but what is the ultimate goal of discipline? Repentance. Reconciliation. Paul, Paul even in our text says, hey, hand this guy over to Satan. So that his flesh can be destroyed by his soul, his spirit be saved. So that he may turn from his wickedness and turn to the Lord. We even see this in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. In other words, discipline is out of love filled with tears. Is it fun? No, but what does it produce? Fruit, repentance. And that is the goal. That is what we must labor towards. Now, what are the steps of discipline? Like, like even though um, Paul doesn't really give us any steps, he gave us the principle and involved the whole members. He gave us the principle, it should be filled with grief and the goal of repentance, but he doesn't tell us any steps. The only step he tells them to do is what? Kick him out, excommunicate him, hand him over to Satan. And so the question is like, so is that church discipline? You, you do something wrong and you just kind of get kicked out? No. Like this is where we look at all of Scripture. And you know what's really interesting? You know who else talked about church discipline? Jesus. So what does Jesus say about church discipline? Let's look. If you have your Bible, let's go ahead and turn to Matthew. I'll give you some time. Turn to Matthew. Verses, uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 17. And so even though when Paul talks about church discipline, he's talking about excommunication, we know that excommunication is not the only step. It certainly is a final step, but not the only one. Look at Jesus and what he says in Matthew 18, verse 15 to 17. Everybody got it? Okay. 
Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell to the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. So real quick here, we're not going to spend too much time on this passage. But I understand this passage for us, it starts off weird, and then it, like, it almost starts off like individualistic and goes into community. But what we have to understand is like, because we grew up in such an individualistic culture, this is how I was raised, this is how you, you were raised. Your mom, your mom and dad always taught you, mind your own, mind your own business. Let them do their thing, and you do your thing. Don't worry about them. You worry about you. In a sense, that's true, but in a sense, that's probably not the best thing. And here's what we have to understand. When it comes to sin, all sin is ultimately against God, right? But if we are the body of Christ, Christ is the head, we're the body, and we're united with him, and all sin is against him, is in a sense all sin also against the body? What we have to understand is Jesus is not just talking about somebody called you a name and that really offended you. And so you're talking to him. He doesn't want to listen to you. And you're bringing more brothers and say, hey, you were wrong. But what he's talking about is just sin in general. And what we have to understand, what, what, what Jesus is addressing in a sin, like, like all sin impacts us. Like my sin privately has an impact on you one way or another. Your sin has an impact on me. One way or another. Why? Because we're the body of Christ. We're connected to one another. Our lives impact one another. So it's not like some private sin that just you kind of beef between you and a buddy. But rather you're seeing a buddy. You're seeing a brother or a sister in sin. And so, so here's the four steps that Jesus says to do. The first thing, if you're taking notes, here's the very first step of, of church discipline. Private, if you're taking notes, private confrontation. What are you supposed to do? You see a brother or sister in sin. And what are you doing? You privately confront them. You're coming to them and say, hey, I saw you did this. This is not right. This is not honoring the Lord. And why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you want one over them and say, aha, I finally caught you. I'm a better Christian than you. No, the principle of church discipline still applies. You approach them filled with grief and tears. And what is your goal? To call them out? No, the goal is repentance. Turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. Jesus says if that doesn't work, the second one, if you're taking notes, is group confrontation. A small group of church members now comes so that the facts can be established. So it's not hearsay. It's not he say, she say, but it's like, hey, this is what happened. This is what we saw. These are eyewitnesses. You need to turn from your sins. And how should they do it? Should they gang up on that person? No, they should be filled with grief, filled with tears. The goal should be repentance and reconciliation. The third step is if they're still not turning from their sins now, 
The second one, if, the third one, if you're taking notes, is now public confrontation. In other words, now the church, the whole church that they belong to now is notified about the situation. And the whole church now gets involved. And then the last step is excommunication. The church excommunicated the unrepented church member. Now, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, goes straight to the, the, the last step. He goes straight to the last step. Why does he go straight to the last step? Because in Matthew chapter 18, like, like according to Matthew chapter 18, he goes straight to the last step. Why? Because in his letter, he says it's already been reported, which means everybody is aware already of that sin. It's not like this is new news. He says it's been reported, which means multiple people have come to him about this. The man has continued in this inappropriate relationship. Time has gone on and he's continually being unrepented, which means it's not like Paul does not believe in those steps, but those steps have already, in a sense, one way or another taken place, which means now it leads to him being excommunicated. Which leads me now to the second step of, of topic, excommunication. What is excommunication? Excommunication is when a church can no longer affirm that a self-professing believer is a genuine believer. In other words, because of how they're living, because of how they're acting, and because they're now being unrepentant, the church is saying, we have no longer confidence that you are professing a professing believer. We're looking at the evidence of your life and that person is being removed from the church membership, not allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. It is the final step to corrective discipline. And who makes that decision? The church. The whole church. It is the last resort. And how should that decision be made? With tears? With a goal of repentance. Now here's one thing we have to understand. You don't get excommunicated because you've sinned. Because if that's the case, I can't be here tomorrow. You can't be here tomorrow. They won't be a church. You get excommunicated... Because you're continuing in your sin and you're being unrepentant of your sin. It is the last, it's almost like the last Hail Mary of hoping, please Lord get a hold of this person. May they feel the weight of their sins so they may turn from their sins and turn to you. And so the reason why Paul is saying, hey, to this guy you need to excommunicate because of the reports because of this pattern that has continued over and over and over and over and over. And the goal is to lead this to repentance. So we've talked about church discipline, talked about excommunication. Again, next week we're going to talk more about, I'm sure you all have a ton of questions. But the third topic we have to talk about is church membership. Now, church membership is not explicit in our text. In other words, you're not going to find it in our text anything about church membership. 
but it's certainly implied. And here's why I say it's implied. If there's a way out of the church, which how's it, which, how, how do you get kicked out of the church? By sinning? No, by being unrepentant of your sin. So if there's a way out, there's got to be a way, there's got to be a way in. How did I make it into the church, this building? I walked through that door and that door, and I'm right here. I didn't just magically appear. If there's a way in, there's got to be, if there's a way out, there's got to be a way in. Second reason how I feel like it's implied, um, how can you practice church discipline without church membership? For example, um, you discipline your children, right? Why? A, you, you love them. B, you're responsible for them and you have somewhat authority over them and you do it for their good, right? Do you discipline a random kid that's acting out in the grocery store? I know you want to, but why don't you do it? You don't do it because it's not yours. You are not responsible for that. You have no authority over that. So how can there be church discipline if there's no church membership? Because what does church membership say? Church membership, and as said, says, I am affirming myself being part of this body of Christ, where this body is going to hold me accountable, where I'm going to grow in community with this body, where I'm going to be discipled, and I'm submitting myself to the leadership of the church and to the church discipline of the whole church that I'm not going to be just put myself under the discipline but I'm also actively going to engage in church discipline but here's the loophole but I don't think it's biblical just don't ever join a church and you'll never be under church discipline but that's really to your negligence here because here's what ends up happening who's going to call you out in tears Let's just be honest. Anybody have blind spots in their life? Yeah, all of us do. One of the most loving things that God can do is to give his people as a gift to us that at times when we're in our sin, at times when there are blind spots, they call you out with tears, with a goal of repentance. And this is why I think church membership is so important. So let's talk about application here. Here's our application. To faithfully engage in church discipline, the gospel must be central. To faithfully engage in church discipline, the gospel must be central. Let me just tell you now, where the gospel is absent, church discipline is either abused or neglected. For example, I know most of your experience with church discipline has been awful. For for example, uh, some young girl all of a sudden got pregnant. And what happens? That young girl is called up to the platform. The pastor reams her out and rebukes her in front of everybody. And they call it church discipline. That's not church discipline. That's called abuse. There is no gospel in it. There is no reconciliation. There is no repentance. That's just humiliation. That's not the gospel. And so when the gospel is not central, you have pastors abusing, church members abusing one another, saying, aha, I have found you, I have found you, I have found you, and we all start beating each other up. Or the other extreme where the gospel is not central, we're just neglecting it. Sin? What sin? This is why, like, like you see us harp on, you need to have gospel understanding. 
Because for us to faithfully engage in church discipline for our benefit, for our good, the gospel must be central. Because this is what happens when the gospel is central. When the gospel is central, we see see sin for what it truly is. Like, what is sin? It's not just a boo-boo. It's not a mistake. It is a willful, rebelling, defying, God-belittling act against the holy God. Like, you want to know how much God hates sin? You want to know what God's attitude towards sin and the price of sin and the penalty of sin? Where do you look? You look to the cross. The bloody cross is an example of the severity and the reality of sin and God's hatred towards sin. But then also the bloody cross is God's love and mercy and grace that he has lavished on sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. Because of Christ's work that he's done for me on the cross, him dying in my place, paying for my sins in full, I'm declared righteous. I've been redeemed. I've been bought from the bondages of sin. I've been set free. I've been adopted into the family of God. I've been accepted and reconciled to God. My sins have been forgiven. And so when God looks at me through his son, Jesus Christ, he doesn't see a heap of disappointment. But what does he see? He sees a perfect, righteous, holy me. Not because I'm perfect and I'm righteous, I'm holy, but rather because of Christ is perfect. Christ is holy. Christ is righteous. Because I'm united with Christ. He sees Christ in me and God accepts me, not because of my performance, but Christ's performance. And all of this is available By God's grace in Christ through faith. Why I believe that God loves me and accepts me and sees me as perfect because of what Christ has done for me. So when I am confronted by my sin, when a brother comes to me or a sister comes to me and say, you've sinned. This is wrong. This does not honor the Lord. I don't have to act like the world does. Deny it. Try to cover up my guilt and shame. Why why not? Because of what Christ has done for me. When he died on the cross for my sins, didn't he take care of my guilt and shame? Didn't he pay for my sins in full? And so when I confess it, isn't there the promise of forgiveness? Well, I can stand before a holy God and say, forgive me, and my forgiveness is is promised because of what Christ has done for me. When when I'm confronted by my sin, I don't have to act in anger. I don't have to pretend it did not exist. I can confess it freely because Jesus has dealt with it. I don't have to run away. I can rather run towards God because he has paid for it in full. And God's acceptance of me And his love for me is not dependent on my performance, but on Christ's performance on my behalf, which, by the way, is is perfect. That's why the gospel has to be central in church discipline. Because church discipline, it shouldn't be a burden. It's a gift. 
It's an opportunity for us to grow in our understanding of the gospel and to preach the gospel to one another. I know for children right now, you see your parents, your parents is disciplining you as a burden. But all of us who've grown up, do we not see our discipline of our, our parents as a burden at time and we look back and we say, oh, thank you. What a gift. That's the same for church discipline. It's not a burden. It is a gift. It's an opportunity for us to minister to one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim the gospel to one another as we see one another's sins and as we confront it in tears and the hopes of repentance and we lead in with the cross and we go out with the cross and the cross is central to our discipline. That is when church discipline is the way that God has designed it. So one of the first things for us to do, I'm not going to say, okay, guys, starting tomorrow, church discipline on everybody. Like we must engage it, but we must make sure we understand the gospel and we grow in our gospel understanding. And that's your assignment. If we want to faithfully engage in this, the gospel must be central, which means you better know it. You better understand it. And so when you're confronting a brother or a sister, you're leading in with the cross, opening up that wound, and you're closing that wound with the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you have come and that you've spoken to us, that you have made yourself known to us. And Lord, I do pray, can you forgive us? Lord, we've done an awful job in church discipline. We've either neglected it or we've abused it. Well, can you forgive us? Can you help us to be a church that understands the gospel? Can you help us to be a church that genuinely loves one another and cares for one another and feels responsible for one another? Lord, and when we see a brother or sister in sin, Lord, can you help us as a church to be filled with tears? and to engage it in a loving way that points to you, Lord Jesus.